What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Chinusa. And before we get into the show, Roe v. Wade is in jeopardy in the United States Supreme Court right now. Banning access to legal abortions is not going to end abortions. It's just going to end safe abortions for those who can't drive across state lines or afford to get the procedure done. We encourage our listeners to donate to Planned Parenthood and to let your representatives in Congress and the Senate know that it is f***ed up for a bunch of old men to tell women what they can and can't do with their bodies. And back to our regularly scheduled programming. Nick, how are you doing on this fine Friday? <laughs> Maddie, I am doing so well. Um, I'm also pretty fired up about this. It's, it's incredibly screwed up, um, especially when you're going to make the argument that Oh, like you're going to say my body, my choice for the vaccine. And then you're going to tell women that they can't get an, a procedure done that will literally change their lives forever. It's, I just can't, I can't put my head around it. It's, it's so screwed up. Um, but anyway, how are you doing today, Maddie? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you brought up the vaccine because I actually just got my booster shot and my flu shot. So got a little double dose. Hey, uh, arms are feeling a little sore. I'm not going to lie. Headache is kind of setting in. So yeah, uh, you you all know that Nick and I podcast through injury and sickness and health. So uh, yeah, you're not gonna you're gonna need more than just a little headache and some arm soreness to keep me from podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you are a trooper. You're doing God's work over there. Every <laughs> single episode is your Michael Jordan flu game. <laughs> <laughs> hey, go get your boosters, people. Uh, Omicron's looking looking fun. So let's let's stay ahead of this one. Yeah, please. Wow, bleak opening to start the show. So uh, yeah, <laughs> let's turn this one into a fun one. Yeah, only up from here. We really can only go up. Hell yeah. All right, let's get into it. Today, here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly for one more episode after this one podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. And before we kick things off, if you haven't already, please leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts to help us get some more visibility. If it's something you've already done, if it's something you haven't, doesn't matter. Just shoot us a review. We hope that uh, your first review was like, this show's really good, and now your show is great. And I want to let you know that on Apple Podcast reviews. So <laughs> let us let your voices be heard. <laughs> yeah, please. And even if it's as, as simple as a good show, good show, I'm fine with that. I'm okay with yeah. that. We That's love fantastic. That. Um, and also, if you have the ability, leave us a review on Spotify. That's huge. Yeah. Actually, one of our friends and listeners of the show, Pat Brunetti, reached out and he said that uh, he still does not have the feature. I had it and now it's gone. So I don't know if Spotify is like 
still rolling this out or not. They might be workshopping it. Yeah. Yeah. If you can review on Spotify or leave us a rating, please do. And if you can't, sorry for wasting 10 seconds of your time there. (laughs) We'll make it up to you. (laughs) That's a promise. (laughs) All right. So our first quick hit comes from the solar power world and it's titled agrivoltaic pilot program on Maine blueberry farms set to provide critical dual use insights by Lisa DeMarco. This was like the perfect storm for me because as we know, I love solar energy and something I don't know if I've talked about on the show before, I love blueberries. They are my favorite of all berries. And uh, yeah, this one hits close to home here. So the story is actually a few weeks old and that's our first of two stories that are a few weeks old. But anyway, really excited to talk about them both. This one's about a 4.2 megawatt dual-use community solar project on a blueberry farm in Rockport, Maine. Now, community solar projects provide solar energy for those who can install it themselves for either land-related or financial reasons. So it's basically a big solar array that can be used by the local community, hence the name Community Solar. Blueberries are also the state fruit of Maine, so this is kind of that perfect intersection of agriculture and renewables for the state. Nick, have you ever had Maine blueberries? You know, Matt, that's a good question. Um, and I kind of feel like I'm too far in life to have not had one. Um, but with that being said, I can't say for 100% certainty that I have. <laughs> um, but sh- I mean, I'm two and a half hours from Maine. So yeah, I feel like I had to have had one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if you have had one, you'd know. They're just they're these beautiful wild blueberries that are like a little bit more tart and just more more depth of flavor going on there. Are they bigger? Uh, I don't know. They're definitely bigger than like the frozen blueberries I get from Trader Joe's. Shout out frozen <laughs> blueberries. But um, yeah, actually I had a friend, uh, Angel, who was in Acadia National Park a couple weeks ago and I saw her Instagram story. So I swiped up and I was like, please bring me back a blueberry pancake mix. I will Venmo you. And I did. And Kaylee and I saved it for when our friends John and Rachel uh, visited this weekend. And we started off our Sunday morning with some Acadia blueberry pancakes. Delightful. Absolutely delightful. I'm jealous. (laughs) All right, let's get back into the article. Uh, So agrivoltaics, which is agriculture plus solar photovoltaic, have grown as an industry from five megawatts in 2012 to three gigawatts in 2020. So there's been a big push over the last decade to get two uses out of the same plot of land. This specific blueberry farm had its solar array completed in 2021 by CS Energy, Navisun LLC, and Blue Wave Solar, who all worked together with ecologists and the University of Maine to ensure that the solar array would be effective, the blueberries would continue to grow successfully, and the university could use the facility to research the impacts on the crops. Blueberries take between 10 and 12 years to grow, So half of the 10-acre project is dedicated to studying the best way to install solar while maximizing blueberry production. And the University of Maine has already begun to monitor the soil quality and moisture, crop production in each of the three construction areas, and they plan to use this research to create a roadmap for blueberry farmers who want to both maintain their farms and bring in renewable energy. A report published in September of last year based on a solar garden in Boulder County, Colorado, found that crop production can increase by up to 70% and water usage can actually be reduced by 30% when using land for both crop production and solar arrays. So hopefully the University of Maine's research are correct about this next part. They are expecting similar results here. 
And having crops underneath solar panels actually helps the panels stay cooler by roughly 16 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. And it will help them produce 2% more electricity than solar arrays without crops. So it's really a win-win for both the crops and the panels here. And I feel like whenever we think of things like this, we always say, oh, I wonder why more groups don't do this. And part of that is usually because of available research. So with the Boulder report that we just mentioned and the research that's ongoing with the University of Maine here, I see no reason why dual-use agrivoltaics can't continue to become more popular moving forward. Yeah, agreed. And for such a small berry, I am genuinely shocked that blueberries take 10 to 12 years to grow. Like you could legitimately make like a hundred dollar whiskey faster than that. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it is, you know, the, the main blueberry just hits different. It's, it's deeper, it's richer. <laughs> You're not going to sell those tiny little frozen ones that are really only good for your smoothies. Like these are the real deal out of bounds blueberries that Guy Fieri's looking for. <laughs> yeah. These are the blueberries that leave you hangoverless. Yeah, that would be big if true. So I, I guess we're going to have to do some independent research and get a little too drunk and eat a little bit too many blueberries and see where the morning takes us. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, it's a date. All right, let's move on to our next one here. And it is from Beth Geiger. And she writes, a big plan to save a tiny rabbit in the Nature Conservancy magazine. Yeah, so this is our second one that's from about a month ago. But again, another article that I stumbled upon this week and I felt it was just too important not to share. So the story kicks off with John Galley, who's a wildlife biologist watching the Sutherland Canyon fire moving across eastern Washington state in June 2017. And he decided to stay with other conservationists with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to help protect the endangered species he'd been working to restore for the previous five years. One of those species is the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit, which is the smallest rabbit in North America at about the size of a mango. (laughs) They're also one of only a few rabbits that actually dig their own burrows. And the next question you're probably wondering, yes, they are extremely cute. They are exceptionally cute. But honestly, Matt, what rabbit is not cute? I I think you could show me a hundred pictures of a rabbit and be like, nope, cute, cute, cute. What what is your ear preference here? Like the floppy ones that go down or like the big perky ones that that shoot up. No, I like the I like the perky ears. I think I think those ears are more welcoming. I feel I, you know I used to have a pet rabbit, and I don't even know why because it was just not it was not a, a safe home. We had two dogs <laughs> at the time. Like it was just like it was always a whirlwind. Like she would just come in the room. Her name was Cinderella. She would come in the room, and she would just bolt around the room like 150 times and then just completely stop and not move a muscle. It was the most interesting thing. Yeah, dude, rabbits are fun. Kaylee's aunt and uncle actually have a rabbit and we house sat for them. Oh God, when? Summer, I think. Summer or fall. And yeah, every time we go up there for a weekend, Kaylee just gets bunny fever and she's like, we should get a rabbit. And you know what, Kaylee, (laughs) when you're listening to this, maybe. <laughs> Less responsibility than a dog, but just enough where it's like, ah, yeah, yeah just enough where you're like, I don't want to clean up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, these rabbits have actually lived on the Columbia Plateau between Eastern Washington and Oregon, and actually into Idaho for thousands of years. In 2001, biologists could only find one colony of the species with under 50 individuals left. In the 20 years since, wildlife biologists, rabbit fans, farmers, ranchers, conservation research zoos, and nonprofits have been working together to increase that population. 
It's actually easier said than done because 80% of the sagebrush habitat they live in has been lost since the 1700s due to human development and farming, which is bad on its own. But there's another factor that we have to bring up here. A quick growing invasive weed called cheatgrass has started to move in. Cheatgrass dries out early every year, making it great tinder for wildfires. So the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbit's habitat now burns every 5 to 15 years instead of every 30 to 100 years. And this doesn't leave enough time for that sagebrush to fully grow back, so more cheatgrass grows in its place. And as we know, climate change is making wildfires more abundant. Yeah, this sucks. I mean, another species that is completely at, at its boiling point for extinction um, because of climate change. Super unfortunate. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. But I also want to bring up some of the conservation stories that they share. Some of them are good, but we're not going to start with those. We're going to go chronological, baby. So <laughs> there's a really cool story in here about Peter Lancaster of the Nature Conservancy finding an active burrow of the pygmy rabbits in 1998. And he hears a road grader nearby right after finding it. The land had actually just been purchased for development so he contacted the investor and bought the entire parcel of land to make sure that those rabbits stayed protected. In 2001, wildlife biologists brought about 16 rabbits to breeding facilities at Washington State University, the Oregon Zoo, and Northwest Trek Wildlife Park. And captive breeding proved to be tough because of inbreeding leading to a lack of genetic diversity, and that led to low survival rates. So in 2004, they began interbreeding the rabbit with the Idaho pygmy rabbit, and they made sure that 75% of the genes came from the Columbia Basin pygmy rabbits. This, as you can imagine, took a lot of meticulous planning, but it led to better pregnancy and survival rates. By 2007, the first batch of those captive bred rabbits was released into the wild, and within months, all 20 were gone. They add that they were probably eaten by predators. And wild pygmy rabbits only have a survival rate of 15%. So out of those 20, you'd probably expect around three to survive. So it's not as crazy as it sounds at first that like all 20 died. But still, that sucks that all of their hard work right there for that batch of rabbits is gone. So starting in 2011, biologists worked on a new program with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to create four multi-acre coyote-proof enclosures with PVC burrows and netting to deter birds of prey. This started to increase the survival rates. That's so cool. Like, literally, these little rabbits have their own little underground system and, like, and they're completely protected from all predators. That's so, that's a dream for uh, an animal that's low on the food chain. Yeah. I forget the hotel that compared it to, it was either like a Hilton or a Ritz Carlton, but they said that this multi-acre project was uh, the Ritz Carlton of rabbit hotels. <laughs> <laughs> so um, getting back into wildfires a bit, like it starts off the article with, wildfires are proving to be a pretty serious problem. And the rabbits are now up to around a hundred individuals which is a lot more than the lowest number that they reached, which was 16. John Galley says we're getting to the point of being able to remove people from the conservation equation here because now generations of wild-born pygmy rabbits are breeding on their own, which is great. However, a wildfire can change things at any time. So Galley is overall cautiously optimistic about the long-term survival of the species despite the species still being close to extinction. So let's hope he's correct and that the hard work of everyone involved, including him, provides another awesome conservation success story for us. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And I can't even imagine the pride you must feel, uh, specifically John and and this whole team, to literally bring a species back from extinction. Like that's got to be such an incredible feeling, and like you really must feel like your work is extremely gratifying. Like I can't even imagine. That's so cool. Yeah. And it's also worth bringing up that like they they didn't give up. So when they found them, there was around 50 and at one point it got down to 16. So while they're working really hard on a bunch of different strategies, the population was still going down. Yeah. And they've now doubled it in the 20 years since they started actively working on this. So look, I mean, still a long way to go, but you got to think the outlook is a lot better than it was 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, good work to that team, and uh, we'll definitely keep up on the story as well. So let's move on to the next one here, and it is from Rachel Morrison of Bloomberg Green and Will Mathis. And they write, Europe's carbon price has almost tripled in 2021. Yeah, so global inflation is hitting Europe's carbon markets pretty hard right now. And it's testing politicians who have been promising to act on climate change. The cost of polluting has increased by over 140% this year. Making it more expensive to pollute typically pushes dirty fuels out of the industrial process, but that's not happening at the moment. The cost of natural gas rising has actually made coal power plants more profitable, especially with winter fast approaching. If you remember COP26 last month, European leaders made some of the loudest pledges for carbon reductions, and in the long term, a high carbon price should nudge investors towards renewables, carbon capture or hydrogen production from renewables, all those sorts of green programs that we're advocating for. But right now we're seeing a little uptick in coal. The authors write, record pollution costs are also likely to be raised by some heads of government at an EU summit scheduled for December 16th and 17th. One of those people includes Poland's climate minister, Anna Moskwa, And she said that the carbon market needs broad reforms and that the current prices will only add costs without spurring emission cuts. And emission cuts are the main goal here. So I'm really glad that she's bringing this up before next week's summit, which, again, starts December 16th and ends on the 17th. Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, of course, you know, inflation is hitting everyone pretty hard right now, but it shouldn't change, you know, your your goals and, and how you're going about uh, reacting to climate change. You should still consider it one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenges that our world faces and, and should, uh, you know, assess it with the utmost, uh, intensity. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, just because we're hitting this short term bump in the road where things are more expensive and look, it's, it sucks right now. It sucks that inflation's hitting right before the holidays when typically people's wallets take a little dent because, whatever it is you're celebrating. Typically, this is a time where you're buying presents for your loved ones. And with prices increasing during that time, it's tough. But making the sacrifices this winter, which hopefully we won't have to do for too much longer, is still really important because the longer we don't make those sacrifices, then the worse it's going to get in 10 years and 20 years when we're rapidly trying to cut our emissions because we didn't start doing it this year. So yeah, I I mean, I get it. I get the short-term frustration, but the long-term goal is kind of still, still king here. Yeah. Yeah. Totally in agreement with you. All right. So let's move on to our last story of the week. And it was published by the New York times by Jack Nikas with photos and a video by Victor Moriyama. 
and it's titled A Slow Motion Climate Disaster, The Spread of Barren Land. This one is about the Dantas family, which has lived in Carnaba dos Dantas, Brazil, for 150 years, with cotton fields, tall beanstalks, and a river leading to a waterfall, rainfall pending. The river has since run dry, meaning that crops would not grow, and the family's 30 cattle quickly drink the last bit of water as temperatures start to approach 100 degrees. Inacio Batista Dantas is 80 years old, and he says that in 50 years, there won't be anyone on their land, which is something he's been telling his grandchildren. His 16-year-old granddaughter, Helena, plans to work the land still, but scientists tend to side with her grandfather on this one. And it's not just climate change that's creating this situation, although that is the obvious one. Certain short-term decisions have played a big role here, such as clearing trees for livestock and extracting clay for the region's tile industry. Desertification is happening globally in northern China, northern Africa, remote regions in Russia, and the American Southwest, and it leaves the soil dry, unable to support life, and without nutrients. Deforestation is already showing to impact crop yields and food productions, and Alisher Mersabif of the University of Bonn in Germany says, with climate change, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, and this article talks about Brazil because its northeast region has the world's most densely populated drylands. So 53 million people are at risk of desertification in a region already known for droughts, poverty, and also a genre of music called bio that talks about how tough life is in the region. Yeah, when I was reading that, I kind of figured that'd be right up your alley because it's like, you know, the the intersection of a cause that we care about in climate, environmentalism, and the way that the local people there portray it is through music, which I feel like is something that definitely would speak to a guy like you. Yeah, it definitely did. I mean, music has always kind of been a coping mechanism for me and, you know, everyone else who makes music. Yeah. And the fact that the way that their genre is kind of classified as talking about how tough life in their region is, that should speak to it that, you know, it's this entire genre. Like, it's not just a couple songs. It's not just a couple of artists from that area. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, things are starting to get worse due to droughts. The IPCC report that we discussed in August said Brazil's northwest faces rising temperatures, a sharp decline in groundwater, and more frequent and intense droughts. Satellite images and field tests show that 13% of land in the region has already lost its fertility, and the rest of the region is at risk, according to the authors. Some more unfortunate news, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has not done anything to try to fix the issue. Instead, he has overseen a sharp rise in deforestation and scaled back environmental regulations. Deforestation in the Amazon is at its worst in 15 years this year. Jeez. Yeah, and the article also talks about ceramic tiles made in Brazil and how they rely on clay reserves in the soil, water to make mud, wood to heat the oven, and a culture of the water will never run out, despite groundwater reserves getting drier and drier every year. Yeah, to break that down a little bit further, a Brazilian government scientist named Aldrin Perez says it takes 300 years to deposit one centimeter of soil. But ceramics companies take three to five feet of soil whenever they extract clay. So they're undoing millions of years of soil deposits in seconds. Wow. And the people who are being impacted by this land degradation need money to survive. But the factories that produce ceramic tiles 
pay landowners about $10 for 30 tons of clay. And after that, their land can't maintain a proper nutrient balance or retain moisture as well. So it's really bleak. Mr. Dantas from the beginning of the story talks about needing to sell the mud on his land in 2010 because a difficult dry season caused his family to almost run out of money. So they had previously used the plot of land for beans, corns, and cotton, but in 2010, they sold their soil for about $3,500, and the land is now barren. Yeah, I mean, you're taking away people's, uh, you know, means of, of providing for themselves and their families. And and when you're doing that, and then you have a president that doesn't do anything in order to, to fix this and help his people, it just creates a, a perfect storm of uh, of. Yeah, it's really just kind of prying on people that are desperate. Like, they were running out of food and money there. So $3,500 for a plot of land makes a huge difference for them in the short run. And you know for a fact the ceramics company knows that. So like, hey, we're going to give you an offer that you can't refuse right now. It's going to screw you over for the next 20, 30 years. But it's going to help you survive. So I don't fault the Dantas family there. I definitely fault the tile companies that are that are doing this. But So yeah, it's it's tough. And to go back to deforestation a bit, this is why it's so crucial that the COP26 pledge to end deforestation is realized and tightened up next year if we don't start to see immediate progress this year. A report from Greenpeace published on Monday of this week brings up some good points about this. The pledging is non-binding and aims to end deforestation by 2030, so countries can continue to deforest for the next nine years, which is why Brazil's President Bolsonaro was comfortable signing it. With a lot of deforestation coming from meat and dairy farming and the pledge not addressing their production at all, it's a little tough to feel as optimistic as I did a few weeks ago when the pledge was announced as a whole. I personally just don't see a way that we successfully end deforestation without addressing the root cause of much of it. And that cause is meat and dairy farming. And a way to address that is consuming less meat and dairy globally. Yeah, and... You know, when you say that, it's not like we're asking people to, okay, no meat anymore. That's it. You're done. Yeah. Like, just try and reduce your your consumption of it. Like, try and be conscious when you go in the grocery store, you know, maybe consider some plant-based options. Maybe you do plant-based two or three days a week. That alone, like, if enough people did that alone, it would just put us in such a better place. Yeah, and don't let great be the enemy of good because a lot of times I hear people say like, oh, I could never go vegetarian because I could never give up fish. I could never go vegan because I could never give up cheese. Then don't. like Give up the things that you can if you want to do that. And if you really love cheese but you don't like beef all that much, you're like, oh, you know, like I don't really get much out of this steak that I eat once a year. You don't need it. And if you do need it, then look, maybe you do a little bit less. Like maybe instead of steak once every month, try to limit it to once every two months or whatever it is. Like we could all find something that is harming the planet and is a small sacrifice for us to make that once you actually do it, you're like, huh, that was a little bit easier than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in your mind is, is bigger than what it actually is. You know, like it's really not that hard. I used to, I used to kind of think that way. I used to be like, Oh, like every meal has to have, you know, uh, either chicken or or fish or steak. Yeah. And like, 
obviously living with a, with my girlfriend who is vegan slash vegetarian, that allows me, or it has allowed me to open up my mind a little bit more about like what I'm putting into my body. And you can get your protein in a lot of different ways. Let's just say that. Yeah. Challenge to the listeners. Next time you're in the mood for a hamburger, make black bean and mushroom veggie burgers at home. It's my go-to. <laughs> they are fantastic. And look, mushrooms give you that nice, like meaty protein feel. Black beans are delicious and you can spice them however you want. I want to, I'm mad. I want to do like a video where I just record you making that, but it's like, it's like Guy Fieri style. So like, I'm like, right, I'm standing right over you and I'm just like asking Breathing you down my neck. What, <laughs> yeah, I'm asking you what you're about to put into the bowl that you're, you're looking at. Like, okay, we're going to go mushrooms now. Okay, now we're going black beans, huh? <laughs> and then you got to take like the biggest bite out of it where it's like, he's going to choke. Oh, wow, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> His mouth was so full, but he got it down with no problem. <laughs> All right, let's get into the, a little break. And uh, yeah, when we come back, we will have my interview with Miss Delaware and hopefully your next Miss America, Sophie Phillips. Yes. See you guys after the break. Nick, so before we took a break, we were talking about Guy Fieri and how that man can just fit an ungodly amount of food in his mouth and get it all down without choking. But what is the one thing that is always missing from diners, drive-ins, and dives? Matt, the guy makes a mess of his face. And what's funny is the man doesn't even own a napkin. I think he's one of those guys that's like, God gave me my tongue for a reason. And I will <laughs> lick my lips until this food is gone. Unlike Guy, the rest of us are mere mortals who make a mess and clean up after ourselves. And I am sick and tired of throwing out a napkin after every individual use. So next time you're wiping your face after a messy dinner that was a one-way ticket to Flavortown, wipe your mouth with Val Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. It's a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Those handkerchiefs are gangster. This is some real deal moisture absorption right here. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And now here's Matt's interview with Sophie Phillips. Today on TPT, we are joined by Sophie Phillips. Sophie and I met during my first year of grad school in 2017 while she was an undergrad at the University of Delaware. And she ended up pursuing the same master's degree as me, energy and environmental policy at UD, 
where she will be finishing up this spring. Sophie's also representing the state of Delaware in this year's Miss America competition, which begins the day this episode airs, December 10th. Miss Delaware herself, Sophie Phillips, welcome to the planet today. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, you know catch up, see what you're up to, and also learn a lot more about Miss America competition and everything that you're doing for that. So this should be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Very excited. Let's, uh, let's take it from the top then. What first got you interested in environmentalism? I think my mom was the person who got me most interested in environmentalism. I grew up pretty much in the woods in Westchester County, New York, and any vacation we went on always involved hiking or backpacking or camping. So just from a very young age, I was obsessed with the environment and knew I wanted a career to be focused somewhat outside at least. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I feel like everyone kind of loves being outdoors growing up. So it's always cool to channel that first love that we all have into, yeah, this is what I actually want to do forever. Exactly. Yeah. I think at three years old, I said I wanted to be a marine biologist and, you know, just kept running with that. Super ambitious. And I bet I couldn't even pronounce that at three. So you were uh, ahead of the game. <laughs> only a little, only a little. <laughs> so what, what did you actually study in undergrad, you know, once you decided that you wanted to pursue this full-time as a career? I started with marine science as my major, but I realized I didn't have to take organic chemistry if I did environmental science with a concentration in marine science. So ended up doing that, skipped the organic chemistry, but got to take all the other classes that I wanted to that had to do with marine science. Then I also decided to grab a minor in public policy, which is something that I didn't think about growing up, but I had taken one class and honestly, fell in love with policy and all the change that you can make as a policymaker. So I started going with that even more. I now I'm getting my graduate degree in energy and environmental policy uh, because of all the experience that I had during my undergrad and my graduate degree that really pushed me to really want to make a difference. And I thought policy was the way to do that. It's so interesting, right? Because we kind of grow up and, you know, you, you don't understand all of the implications that policy actually has because you're a teenager and then a young adult. And then once you really start to dive into it, it's the easiest way to make a big impact on a lot of different things is to go through that policy route. So yeah, it's really cool that, you know, picking that minor kind of led you to where you're at now with your master's program. Definitely. Yeah. Not something I expected, but I'm happy it led me here. Perfect. Uh, so what's, what's your focus in grad school right now? Do you have uh, your thesis all, all starting to get wrapped up? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Done with collecting data. So I'm focused on diversity in parks. So I'm focused on Rock Creek National Park in D.C. and Gwynn Falls Leakin Park, which is a state park in Baltimore, Maryland. And all of that came about because I wanted to focus on environmental justice. And that happened because I took a book club uh, between my undergrad and my graduate degree with Professor McKay Jenkins in the Environmental Humanities Department at the University of Delaware. Started talking a lot about different environmental justice issues and being a multiracial woman and coming from a multicultural background, I really wanted to focus on these issues that I had never really heard about before. And most people I had talked to had never heard about them. So that's why I decided, yeah, environmental justice and diversity in parks was what I really wanted to focus my master's in. Awesome. Yeah, it's not surprising to I feel like everyone that has taken a class or just interacted with McKay Jenkins feels so inspired by what he does. Awesome professor. I love this course. So that's really cool to hear. What was the book that, um, that you read for that? We read a ton. 
we started with the Tao Te Ching just to get an idea of nature and how different cultures look at it. And from there, we watched Spike Lee's documentary, When the Levees Broke. Okay, cool. I think that documentary is honestly what did it for me, just seeing what people in New Orleans were facing during that time and why they were facing it and why it was mainly people of color that were mostly impacted. And yeah, from there, it's like, this is it. I really need to focus on environmental justice and make sure something like this never happens again. Yeah. And not to make this whole conversation too much about McKay, but I feel like he was great about picking out things that super interesting topics, but also the the movies and documentaries that you watched for his class. And then the books you had to read were all just absolute page turners. So yeah, he was great at figuring out what message he wanted to get across to his students. And that's cool that you picked up that huge interest from that. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely had a huge influence and I don't know if he even knows how much influence he's had on my life, but just an absolutely insane amount. That's so cool. So how long have you been competing in Miss America competitions? And I guess, how did you first get involved in that? I started competing in 2017 only, and I've only watched Miss America that many times, so only twice. So it's very new to me still. I feel like I've gained so many different skills from it though, which is why I continued my ability to interview with different people has just gotten so much better. I'm so much more comfortable in front of the camera and interacting with people I don't know and obviously really close friends as well. And just so many people too. the connections with communities I've gained over the years has just been phenomenal. I originally got started because one of my friends actually had been competing for a while and she came up to me in my marine science class and said, you know, this is a scholarship organization and there's so much community service involved. And I've seen you grow up doing all this community service stuff. And I feel like this organization is one that you'd be really, really good at. And at first, you know, Miss America has this really weird connotation to it. And I didn't really want to get involved with that. Took her a couple of years to get me to really want to do it. Mm -hmm. But I tried it, won the scholarship money that helped me pay for my undergrad and continued with it. And now it's paying for my entire graduate school. So I'm very happy that I stuck with it. That's so awesome. That's really cool to hear too. Yeah. 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 I feel like before I met you, I knew absolutely nothing about the competition. So I remember we were sitting down in class, like, oh yeah, this is what I'm doing in my free time right now. I was like, whoa, that's, that sounds so cool. And yeah, I, like I said, knew absolutely nothing about it other than there's a competition every year and someone gets crowned Miss America. So yeah, it's cool to kind of see your perspective on all of this. That's honestly the extent of what I knew about it too. Like I didn't really follow it at all. I didn't even know there was a new Miss America every year. Like I had no idea anything about Miss America competition. So it's very new, but yeah, I have fallen in love with it now. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of community service that goes on. I just kind of want to hear more about what you actually have to do while you're competing. And, you know, once you were named Miss Delaware, if that changed anything as far as your community service obligations? So there are no obligations with community service. It's really what you want to do and how you want to spend your year. I have always loved community service and I, you know, studying environmental justice really wanted to make a difference in that sphere. So I started working with McKay Jenkins in uh, a forest called Still Meadow. Peace Park is what we're, we're calling it now. It's a 10 acre forest that is behind Still Meadow Community Fellowship in Baltimore, Maryland in West Baltimore. 
okay. which is a primarily African-American community. And this forest was a disaster. It was dying and there was debris that was clogging the roads leading to really awful floods. And with partnership with the U.S. Forest Service, this church and University of Delaware, we were able to completely revamp this forest. So a lot of my community service has gone towards that project and really working with the communities there to get involved as well. Because that's the biggest part of this is environmental justice has to be community driven. You can't have the idea, go in and do it without their approval and their acceptance mm -hmm. and really their, their help with it as well. So that's a big part of that project is making sure community members are getting in, doing all the hard work with us and getting that experience in nature that they don't normally have access to. Another project I'm doing is a community garden project in Southbridge, Wilmington, which is a primarily low income minority neighborhood. And they've had a lot of issues with flooding. If you talk to those community members, they describe themselves as being underwater because of all the, the flooding that's happened with these big storms that happen, you know, because of climate change. Mm -hmm. So they're impacted by that, impacted by excess heat because there's no greenery or no trees there. And just so many different environmental justice issues going on in that community. So it's also a food desert on top of that. So we created this community garden with Wayne Marshall, who is now like a family member to me. He had bought the land with a loan and we completely revamped it after getting some funding. So we worked with a lot of little kids in the neighborhood to plant all the stuff. And then we, once it was done, harvested it and had this free market for people in the community. And with that, we created a cooking class as well that we're gonna be doing every month, I think we're gonna do, which is having community members come in from this food drive that we have and starting to cook with all these ingredients that a lot of people don't know how to use. Like there's a lot of ingredients in this garden and at this food drive that we've created that I don't know how to use. So I have a chef come in and we teach them how to do it and they go home with leftovers for the week. So it's really been incredible getting to know all these community members. They really, really feel like family at this point. And I can't wait to move all of these projects to a national scale. That's so cool. And Honestly, just, you know, out of all of that, the thing that I'm most impressed by is also getting younger kids involved because, you know, eventually, whether it's a week from now or a couple months from now, I assume that you're going to be more busy and won't be able to fill this commitment all the time. Having that next generation kind of experience it and lead the generation after them is going to be huge for the community as a whole. So that's so cool. Exactly. Yeah, it's fostering that love and that you know, appreciation of community service in a younger generation. And I see them really getting involved and really loving what we've been doing. It's also hard not to love what you're doing when you start to see progress. So it's really cool that they're experiencing this from the ground up and, you know, they probably feel like they're helping build this because they are. So that's so, that's so awesome. Exactly. Exactly. So I know that we talked a little bit earlier about how you have this big environmental focus as part of Miss Delaware, but, um, what, is your main focus in terms of the environmental side of this? I think a big part of it is the ultimate goal, which is getting more diversity in staffing and in visitors to parks. So right now, the demographics are just terrible when it comes to visitors and staff mm -hmm. only. Um, 70, so 79% of all full-time permanent employees in the National Park Service are Caucasian and 62% of all employees are male. So we really are seeing not the diversity that we need there. So I really want to get this younger generation involved and even older members of the community involved in nature related projects. So they get their hands in the dirt and they start that love that I had growing up. 
So they start to pursue jobs in government positions like the National Park Service, National Wildlife uh, Service, all of these positions that we really need more diversity in and different perspectives in. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought some statistics into that because, you know, growing up, we're both from Westchester County in New York, which is predominantly white. So whenever mm-hmm. I would do things outside and, you know, go for hikes and go to parks or local zoos and see a lot of white people, I just kind of assumed that was a nature of the demographic. But expanding it to the state level and to the national level, the outdoors is just overwhelmingly white and it isn't really a good representation of what our community and what our country actually looks like. So to hear those numbers, I mean, it makes sense. It's something that I never would have thought of growing up, but the more you learn about it, the more you realize, yeah, diversity in the outdoors is kind of a problem. Exactly. Yeah. And in these government positions too, like you really need different perspectives to make the best organization, to have the best ideas. So we're really just missing a huge part of the population and that perspective that comes with that. Yeah. Completely agree with you on that one. So what would you say the coolest story you can share from your time working on your environmental impact is? Okay. So this is all just unfolding right now. So Wayne Marshall, Mm -hmm. who owns the land with the community garden that we started, he has a grandson named Lamar Marshall Jr. We call him LJ. He's only six and he helped us with this community garden. But when we first got there, he started doing all these flips and dance moves and these beautiful kicks. And I assume that he had dance lessons or gymnastics at the very least, but he had never had the chance to have a teacher because his family couldn't afford that. So he just all of this from YouTube and TikTok and whatever social media he could get his hands on. So I took a video of him, put it on social media. I tagged Alvin Ailey, which is a dance company in New York City that I grew up watching. That's one of the best in the world. And, you know, all the local Delaware dance companies and somebody in Alvin Ailey saw it and showed a dancer from there. And she told her dance teacher in Wilmington all about this little kid, showed him the video. And now he's a scholarship student at the Wilmington Ballet what? Academy. That is so cool. Yeah. So we've been doing some, some new stuff with that. We were on NBC 10 Philadelphia this week and we're filming with ABC World News coming up soon. And all these different news stations are interested, which is so important to me because this is LJ's shot. Yeah. He's only and he's never had a teacher, but he's this little prodigy dancer. And now, you know, the whole country is going to know about him. So I'm, I'm really, really excited for him and for our family. God, you must be so proud too. Like you played such a big part in that. That's so cool. Yeah. It's so surreal to me that that happened. Like you hear about things going viral on social media and some things coming from that, but I never thought that it could actually happen to me or to LJ. This is, it's amazing. Yeah. It's like how many, how many times have we all thrown something up on Twitter, Instagram, and just been like, Oh, notice this. And you never expect it to actually happen. This is the time where this actually happened and is working out. That's so cool. Exactly. Yeah. It shows one of the good things about social media, because obviously there are so many bad things, attention spans and with teens being impacted by social media. Mm -hmm. So it's really great to see something positive coming from it. Yeah. And it's cool to see you use your platform to also elevate Mm -hmm. somebody else. It's really, really cool story. (laughs) Rooting for you, LJ. Yeah, so much. Oh my goodness. He's a ball of energy too. You can watch that interview because like he's hysterical in it. 
Awesome. So after the competition, which again, for the listeners, is going to start the day this episode airs. So pay attention. We are all rooting for Sophie here. What is next for Sophie Phillips? I want to be a national park ranger and I want to work in diversity and inclusion inclusion in parks. So there's this really awesome ranger. His name is Shelton Johnson. And he was the first African-American ranger in Yellowstone. And now he's working in Yosemite. And he's created this really cool diversity and inclusion management plan. And he's looking for somebody to take over for him. And I want that person to be me so badly. So right after I'm done with my, if I become Miss America, my year as Miss America, I immediately want to start working for the park service. And it would be a dream to work for him and really continue his his dreams and his goals of creating more diversity in the park system. That sounds like a perfect fit for you and just absolute dream job. So yeah, that would be so cool if you got to learn from, from you said Shelton was his name? Yeah, Shelton Johnson. Learn from Shelton Johnson and then he would be leaving the program in good hands. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I hope so. I would do everything I could to make sure it succeeds. Well, Shelton, if you ever catch this interview and you know become a, a listener of the planet today, just know that Sophie gets our endorsement and, you know, you'd be making a really good choice if you hired her. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right. You ready to do some fun rapid fire questions? Oh, yeah. All right. First one. What is your favorite animal? Favorite animal. Oh, this is weird. Pangolin. I know a lot of people don't know about them, but they're actually so adorable and they're endangered. So look them up. They're amazing. Let me break the rapid fire real quick. When I worked at the Bronx Zoo, we got to uh, interact with a pangolin and yeah, they're, they're really cute. (laughs) Small, small little, what are they like rodent mammals, but yeah, Yeah. got like armored shells kind of, they're cool. (laughs) Yeah, they're so cool. All right. Question number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life? I'm a vegan, so I try really hard to do that for the environment. That's why I originally became a vegan. And yeah, that's why I've stuck with it too. I think for all vegetarian, vegan type diets, it's so important to find your reason to do it. If you don't, it's impossible to stick with it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of people who don't change their diet at all, their excuse is like, oh, I could never do that. And what I find is with a lot of people, it's just because they haven't tried or they just can't imagine breaking their routine. So Yeah. Like you said, find your reason and stick with it. That's cool. And last one, what is one topic you think people should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Environmental justice. (laughs) It's a topic. Yeah. A lot of people don't know about, I don't know if I actually defined it either. It's essentially black indigenous and other people of color are disproportionately subject to environmental hazards and frequently live in close proximity to industrial pollutants. So they're more impacted by all of these issues. So we got to do what we can to make sure that we keep them safe. Absolutely. All right, Sophie, thank you so much for your time today. Where can our listeners keep up with the cool things that you're doing? And more importantly, maybe not more importantly, but important to us, where can they vote for you for Miss America? (laughs) Yeah. So MissAmerica.de is my Instagram handle for Miss Delaware. And on Facebook, I think I'm just under Miss Delaware and all the posts go there too. So whichever one is easier for you, that works. And we have people's choice. So if you go to, I think it's America's Choice DE on, oh man, what is that called? Spot Fund. That's how you can find where to vote for me. Awesome. We will put the link to that uh, in our in our post when this episode airs. That way our listeners don't have to even search. All right, Sophie. So the competition starts today. When is this all going to be wrapping up and when can we crown you Miss America? 
Yeah, I should have. I sh- okay, this is what something I should have said. December sixteenth is the finals night, and that's when it'll be on TV. We don't know what channel yet, but definitely will be on TV. Hey everyone, this was announced after we recorded, but the competition will be streaming on the free version of Peacock. All right, this is a lot of fun, and I know our listeners definitely learned a lot today from the next Miss America. I hope so. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. All right, thanks again, and we will talk soon. All right, thank you. And that'll do it for this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back for our last episode of 2021. We're going to be taking the two weeks off after that for Christmas and New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, spend some time with our friends, our family, so... Yeah, no episodes for the next two Fridays after this next show. Yeah, and if you missed our Thanksgiving mini episode, uh, next week will be our last 60-minute episode. Yes, so our first episode of 2022 is going to drop Friday, January 7th, and it will only be 30 minutes long, so it's easier to listen to. Tell your friends. (laughs) Yes, please. And guess what? You won't even have to wait a week for more TPT after that's over because we're dropping our first ever Monday episode on January 10th of 2022. Buckle up because 2022 is going to be a huge year for this show. And until you hear from us next, share the show with a friend or two who you think would like it. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, story recommendations, potential guests, send those our way on either our socials or through email. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you can do it there. We would also love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.